Each year, about 50,000 children die in the United States. And while this is a real profound loss for their parents, we ask the question, what about their siblings? Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Betters, and I am the host of this particular Help and Hope podcast produced by Marking Ministries. You know, when our 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend Kelly were in a fatal car accident back in 1993, our other three children became part of that 50,000 who have lost a sibling. We learned there was very little help for our children as they mourned the loss of their younger brother. Now, Doug McRae, my guest in today's podcast, was only 11 years old when he lost his 16-year-old brother. It's our hope that Doug's story will help parents understand the grief of their children a little better and also encourage those who have lost siblings as, as when they were young children that their own grief journey was actually normal. Doug, I want to welcome you. It's great to have you with us here today. And why don't you, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you're doing today, what your life is like today, and, and then we'll we'll take a little journey. Well, I'm a husband uh, of Deb for over three decades. I have three uh, adult children, two boys and a girl, who are all doing doing well. And very blessed to have uh, two very young grandchildren, two and one years old, that live close by. That's the, the, the family structure that I'm very, uh, very blessed with. Uh, I'm a financial advisor and investment advisor. I work in Pennsylvania, live in Delaware, so across the line every day. That has been my calling, my career for the last 20 years. Uh, before that, I practiced law for about a dozen years. And so that's been my kind of adult career uh, life. Well, I know you're a very busy man. I would also like to mention that you are an active member of the board of Marking Ministries. Uh, when we approached you and asked you to serve on the board, what was your reason for agreeing to do so? Well, I was certainly aware of how Marking Ministries was birthed with the, the loss of, of your son. And I remember the first couple of times that I spoke with you and Sharon there was a connection there because you lost your 16-year-old son and I lost my 16-year-old brother. And I knew that the two of you were interested in, in how I was dealing with it because your children were growing up to be what I was and were in the process of going through the decades of, of adjustment and, and grief and, and things like that that I've had to work with. So I saw that the how powerful your ministry was and how it answered a lot of questions in a, in a healthy way that, that I had never seen before, in particular being candid, honest with your feelings, with God as well as, every, as, well as others. And it kind of helped me to, to, to reach a new level of, of understanding what I had been going through all these years. So if that could help others who are going through the same thing, and, and in my mind, everyone is going through some sort of a struggle, emotional grief, whatever it is. And... Uh, our Savior is here to help us through that, uh, and our responses aren't always healthy. And so, I think Marking Ministries really has helped me, and I know it's helped many others that I have put in touch with it come to a a healthier view of what they're going through and helps them heal in a, a way that's more whole. I think it's important to note that uh, there are so many similarities in your story uh, to my story especially as it relates to your childhood. 
I want to take you back to to your childhood, and perhaps you could produce a setting for us that will show us what kind of family you were raised in and with, what your relationship to your siblings was like then. Let's take a, a little trip back into your childhood and tell us a little bit about your family structure. Sure. Uh, I grew up in a, a small town in Massachusetts. My father was a, a plumber. Uh, my mother was a dispatcher for the local fire department. So it was a uh, that kind of a, a kind of a blue collar setting that we grew up in, and my parents had ultimately had five children. I was the third of those children, and the, the first three were the three brothers: Ricky, Colin, Douglas, and we were all born within five years. And then later on, there was a sister who was four years younger than me, and then another brother six years later. So there are there are five of us in total, and. We all lived in the bottom floor of a two-story house. It was a pretty small house, and my two brothers and I all shared a room. We were a, a family that went to church every Sunday. We went to the local Baptist church. Never missed. We weren't allowed to miss, whether we liked it or not. And so that was the, the general setting of our family. Now, you and your brothers like to do a lot of roughhousing. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. I do remember a lot of occasions where uh, I bore the brunt of it being the youngest, being the youngest is also somewhat helpful because I knew my brothers would only go so far because if there were too many bruises, they would get in trouble. But I do remember waking up sometimes with bruises on my arms because I wanted to see how heavy a sleeper I was. There are a lot of other, a lot of other things we did together. One of the big themes in our lives was uh, just being outside and all sorts of sports activities, in particular baseball. We, we played baseball all the time. I used to go to the ball field at 8 o'clock in the morning and come home at 8 o'clock at night, and especially yeah. in the summertime. And our parents didn't even know where we were. <laughs> you you were raised in a Christian home. You were raised by Christian parents. Was your was your faith your own then? We had a, a church that was was uh, very good at, at preaching the gospel, and and Sunday school was very effective. So I understood. I felt like I understood everything that was going on. Read the Bible quite a bit. Heard all the stories. So. Uh, I was getting the, the feeding that I needed, certainly. And, and as a young person, as a, a child, I understood the general, general story. You describe somewhat graphically a situation where you were riding your bike home, I guess, from school. Mm -hmm. And uh, your brother, you knew where he was at the time, and he would always chase you right. and grab a hold of the bike, probably give you a punch or two. One day, that didn't happen. You want to take us back to that day and tell us? From there, what happened in your family? Sure. It was a, a warm day. It was June. So I was still in school and I used to ride my Stingray bicycle back home every day. And my older brother, Ricky, who was 16 at the time, he and his friend Don would come home earlier because they were older and school let out earlier for them. They would change their clothes and they would go back towards another school because they had janitorial jobs at this school called Miller School, which is right next to the school where I went. So as I was coming home every day, he would be walking towards the, the same direction that I was coming back from. So it just developed into this, this habit that I would be coming around the corner onto Winthrop Street where we lived, and he and Don would, would be coming at me, and I would immediately start pedaling as fast as I could. He was a, he was a very fast, athletic uh, young man. He chased after me. He would always grab that back part of the bike, stop me short, whack me around a little bit, and I, I would, of course you know, uh, whine or do whatever I could to, to get away. I loved every minute of it. So that was 
kind of our routine for a while that uh, that spring and into the summer. And this one particular day, June 2nd, I was getting really ready to, to beat him this time. And so I tried to take the corner much tighter, stay further away, get, get more of a head start. And he never made a move. He and, he and Don just kept walking. So it was just one of those moments of disappointment and, you know, curiosity as to, you know, what happened here. But being an 11 year old, I just kept pedaling and would have forgotten completely about it had the rest of the day not happened the way it did. How did the rest of the day go? I got home and I do remember a couple of buddies of mine on the street. We had a whole bunch of kids on the street. And for whatever reason that day, there was a particular board game that we were enjoying. And so we started playing this board game. And my mother wasn't real happy when we would do that. She wanted us outside, but she was tolerating it. She wanted us to play outside. So we were just kind of hanging out, doing that for a while. And my mother would always be in the next room in, in the kitchen where the phone was. And the and the phone rang and she picked up the phone and, and not long after she was on the phone, she came into the room and said, you boys need to go outside. And she said, Ricky fainted at school. So we went outside and a couple of my buddies took off and my other friend whose, whose name happened to be Richie, we just kind of hung out, but there was something, nothing occurred to me at that point that was wrong. I mean, faint. I saw people faint on sitcoms my whole life growing up. It never, that didn't seem like a serious thing. You just give them smelling salts or throw water on the bucket of water and they wake up. So Richie and I went outside, we started playing around outside, but there was something inside of me that was telling me not to go far away. And so we hung out, we were basically in the front yard, kind of just, just roughhousing and, and, and doing what 11 year olds do. And this police car pulled into our driveway and stopped right in the front of the driveway. We have a long driveway. And this officer, whose name I still remember, a guy named Dave Swinema, he got out of the passenger side and started walking toward the house. And immediately my mother came walking out the front door towards him. And she knew, she knew him very well. She worked for the fire department, so she knew all the police, local police officers. So they, they kind of met. And I was just looking at them maybe 100 yards away or something like that. So I didn't hear any of the words that were being spoken. But I did observe... He said something to her and she just started screaming, oh my God, oh my God, turned around and started going toward the house. Both of the police officers went to be by her side and kind of walked her into the house. But at that point, it's, it didn't add up what was going on. The last thing in my mind was that Ricky was, was dead or that there was something um, bad had happened that, that just doesn't happen to uh to 16 year, healthy 16-year-olds, and it, it just didn't compute, not at all. Eventually, my older brother, other older brother, Colin, came out and said, you know, mom wants us in the house. So I went in the house, and at that point in time, at, at this stage, we had actually been able to take over the upstairs. So the three, of, the three boys all had rooms upstairs. So we were told to go upstairs. I went upstairs. Colin came upstairs with my youngest brother at that time, who was an infant, and my sister. Still no idea what's going on. I remember to this day picking up the phone that was upstairs and unscrewing the bottom part so I could listen in on a conversation. And my mother was talking to a doctor. The doctor was saying there are no marks on his head. That's, I still remember that. And I, I still couldn't figure out what was going on. And my, my older brother Colin walked into the room. And when he saw what I was doing, uh, he was not happy. He actually punched me in the face. <laughs> So put that phone down. And normally 
Colin and I, we would get in fistfights all the time. He would always win, but didn't never stop me. Something was going on and I knew, you know, no, this is not the time to fight back. Uh, so I complied. And still though, you know, I might've played with baseball cards or did something to, to pass the time. Did not occur to me that anything major was wrong. It just would not compute. But then eventually my father was downstairs, which again, didn't compute. He was never home that time of day. He, he uh, called us down and we all, they told us to sit on the couch. We sat on the couch. Our pastor was there, Pastor Washburn. My father was there. My mother was there. And Pastor Washburn just said, your father has something to tell you. And he could barely get the words out before he lost it and just said, you know, Ricky is in heaven with Jesus. And of course, now it finally added up what was going on. And it was just sheer bedlam at that point. Uh, all of us just lost it. What was the cause of his death? It ended up being a, a heart attack when he was two to three years old. So before I was even born, he had had rheumatic fever and evidently it, it weakened his heart. But they didn't know that at the time. That was their ultimate judgment at this point later on when they did the autopsy. It was basically just a, a heart attack. And he was a very healthy, very athletic kid. The only warning was that day he felt tired. You know, Don told us later when he was walking to school. He didn't feel well. He had to stop and rest on his way to the school. So he, evidently his heart was given out on him and, and uh, he just, he died immediately. He just fell down in school, fell, you know, and, and died immediately. Now let's focus on you as an 11 year old boy. You're surrounded by all of this uncertainty. Right. What's going through your mind as you're watching your parents, as you're listening to the pastor, as you're watching the police officers? your other brothers and sister? What's going through your mind as an 11-year-old during all of this confusion? Well, after it became clear, after I, I was certain what was going on, the very first thing that I remember how I reacted was I just wanted to be alone. When my father first told us, he took us all, took us up to a field, started trying to talk to us. Of course, he couldn't talk to us because all I could do was cry. And I didn't want any part of that. I wanted to be alone. And so I spent probably the, the next week when we didn't have to go to school, probably most of the time up in my room, you know, doing whatever, but wanting to be alone. And ultimately, I came to a pretty quick resolution. And it wasn't one that I expressed with words, but I, I know I felt it was that I need to move on. I saw all the crying going on around. My mother was crying. My father was crying, all this. And I hated every second of it. So I very quickly developed this desire to move on. I, I do remember specifically very well-meaning people, and there were a lot of them because my father had 10 siblings and my mother came from a, a, fa a family of four as well. So we had cousins and uncles and aunts and, and grandparents, all sorts of people coming around. So it was, and our church was very supportive. But I don't ever remember, as you say, I don't ever remember anyone asking me, how are you doing? Uh, I do remember people talking to me saying, this is how you should feel. Time, uh, and I, I grew to hate all of the, the cliches, uh, time heals all wounds. And I actually, for the longest time, hated Romans 8.28 because I kept hearing that from people. And, you know, you, you couldn't tell me anything good was coming of this. And so I actually began to really hate it when people quoted that verse to me. So for me, it was mostly I just went inward and 
just wanted to live a normal life and didn't want anyone to talk about it. I just wanted to get past it as quickly as I could. Uh, for those who may not know, what does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him. And I heard that, that verse as something good is going to happen as a result of this. And I didn't believe it. And it really gave me a crisis and a struggle of faith for a good decade. Because if that's what the Bible says, I need to see proof. Um, that's kind of where I, where I stood at that point. When people would say, quote Romans 8.28 to you, or say such things as, you know, God has a purpose for this. It's all going to work out in the end. Give you these platitudes and these cliches that we Christians like to throw around. As an 11-year-old boy, did any of that register with you? And what was it like, as far as your faith is concerned, as an 11-year-old boy, hearing that but not seeing anything good coming out of it? I remember specifically after that happened, I, I specifically remember a Sunday school class for the following year. We had a Sunday school teacher who I could tell was really, even when she wasn't talking just to me, was talking to me <laughs> and clearly laying out the gospel to me. And I, and I to this day, appreciate that, but wasn't going to make a step forward. I, I needed to see the proof that good would come of this. So my faith journey, I, I kept journeying in the faith. It wasn't that I was turning my back on God, but I fully believed that God was going to do this good. And, you know, once I see the good that comes of this, then maybe my faith will become more solidified. But that's what I was waiting for. And I did have faith that it, it would happen, but it was getting more and more implausible to me as our family didn't get better. It just got worse. As time wore on, it was the effects of it were permanent, were devastating, and, and I just kept struggling to see how, how in the world was this going to work out for good. Now, in the next year or two, as I read through the article that you wrote on this, a whole series of things yeah. really added to your confusion and your desire that God kind of proves that Romans 8.28 passage to you. What were some of those things? What were some of those other crises that happened right on the heels of you losing your brother? Yeah, I, I specifically remember within that same year, sitting on the couch with my mother and probably my sister and brother too, I don't know, uh, but I specifically remember being next to my mother when she got a phone call and she, she picked up the phone while she was sitting there. And again, she lost it. Her only brother uh, died in a car accident. So here we go, here we go again, my mother going through this and I wasn't as close to this particular uncle so that it didn't hurt quite as much, but still devastating my mother. Uh, within that same period of time, probably six months after my, my mother and sister were in a horrible car accident, my sister was fine, but my mother was incapacitated for close to a year. We had to have a, an older cousin come in and kind of be a nanny. And so we were going through that. And then my youngest brother, who was two years old at the time, reached up to a counter and pulled down a, a big uh, pot of coffee onto himself and got second, third degree burns all over his front. So he was in the hospital and the whole church was praying for him. And so there are, there are a number of things that all seemed to happen within a one to two year period that wasn't making it any easier to figure this all out. You really wanted to be alone. You really did not want a whole bunch of people around you. You wanted to find your way through and move on your own way. 
what were some of the things, the good things that adults did or said to you that really helped you move forward? And what were some of the things that they said or did to you that held you back? You know, it's, I know that, especially in retrospect, I know that it was a small town and teachers in the public school, as well as people in the church were pulling for us, pulling for me. So in retrospect, I really appreciate it. At the time, I really didn't have much of a clue. I mean, as I said, I, I do remember that, that Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Davis in particular, and I really trusted her and I, and I really learned a lot from her and I could tell she was sincere, just didn't push me over. <laughs> and there was a, a particular friend of my mother's who, who just through acts of being there, she seemed to know that, you know what, I'm not going to, she didn't try to say the right thing. She just tried to be there and be there for us. She was a good friend, friend of my mom's. And I do specifically remember that she came over and made us meals so that my mother wouldn't have to. And she, she did things like that from time to time. So, so there were, there were some of those things. It wasn't any words that anyone said. I don't remember anything that anyone said words that stuck with me, but I do remember people whose demeanor and whose caring obvious caring about us uh, was helpful. You know, one of the things we're learning as we probe into the grieving process is when they, when a child loses a loved one, in your case, a sibling, mm-hmm. uh, the grieving process doesn't really start until they're much older when the full weight of what happened to them kind of comes home to roost. Now, your next few years, you're going through middle school and then high school and then college and then law school. At what point along the way, as you're growing up, as you're getting older, at what point along the way did the full weight of this loss come home to hit you? Well, the full weight of the loss didn't come for many years later. I struggled with God and it took me a good, as I told you, about 10 years or so before I finally was able to reconcile all this with God and trust him. Still, I was pretty closed off emotionally, for, especially about this particular issue, for a long time. And as I said, I have a wife and, and three children. And probably about 10 years ago, when my children were 16, 15, 12, you know, 12 in, that, in, that, in that range, so a little, little more than 10 years ago, we used to like to take day trips to, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country, and, and do things there. And, and at one point, we, we went there, and one of the things that we we like to do, I certainly like to do, is go to these antique malls where they have the different booths with different types of antiques. And we were walking through the sports memorabilia shop of antiques. And uh, I looked up and up to my left hanging up there was a baseball bat. And I happened to notice that it was a Louisville slugger. And I thought to my mind, oh, that's, that's the kind of bat we always use. And I, then I noticed that it had the name Carl Yastrzemski etched on it. And growing up in Massachusetts, he was our our hero. And, and it occurred to me, oh, I, th- I think we had a bat like that when I was growing up. And I just kind of said that out loud. And then I moved on. Well, unbeknownst to me, my three kids went to Deb and said, hey, let's buy this for dad's birthday. And they did. So here I am. It had been years since I'd even played softball. And, and, and this, there's this wrapped gift that looks like a baseball bat. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Why would they be giving me a baseball bat? And I began to open it. And the odd thing, as I'm opening it, first of all, I notice, oh, it's this, it, I immediately knew what had happened. It was the bat that I had, that I had seen. And I saw it was Louisville Slugger. Okay, that's cool. I saw that it had uh, Kari Swimsky's name on it. And then I looked 
I still struggle with this. I looked and it was 36 ounces, exactly the same. And all these memories began to flood in. Because I remember when Ricky got that bat, that, um, boy, I can't wait till I'm big enough to use a bat. I was probably using a 31 ounce at that point, and Ricky had that bat, and Ricky was a great hitter. And so I specifically remember that. But then there was something about this bat. I looked at it, and right above Louisville Slugger was the word powerized. And again, I remembered when we first saw that bat, how in awe I was. Wow, powerized. To this day, I don't even know what powerized means. But all these memories and emotions just started flooding back, very specific things. And, and it all happened all at once. You know, even this, this one particular time when we were all playing baseball together and I made a good play and Ricky looked at me with approval. And as you can tell, I lost it. And my kids had never seen me cry. They had never seen much emotion in me at all. <laughs> they were looking at each other thinking, you know, what have we done to dad? But, uh, but yeah, that was the first time in a long time. Well, that was the first time I had felt those emotions really since the day he died. And the odd thing to me was, yeah, I was bawling in, in front of my kids, which at first was embarrassing, but it really wasn't. But I, it was a release. It actually felt good in my whole life. You know, my father was a drill instructor in the Marines and, you know, we were raised to be tough, tough kids and boys don't cry, all that good stuff. And so the thought of crying and enjoying it, but, but I actually was enjoyed so much having those emotions again. It wasn't just the, the actual factual memories of remember playing that baseball game and remembering that bat and all that stuff, but it was actually allowing those, those emotions to kind of flood through. It was, just, it was an enjoyable moment in time. And even now when I recount the story, I just can't hold it together, but it's okay. <laughs> there was a time it would have bothered me. I would have been humiliated, but actually enjoyed the release. And uh, you were how old when this uh, exchange with your children? Somewhere between 45 and 50. It stands to reason that just seeing that bat uh, brought back so many memories for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's And again, I was surprised by them because some of the memories that came back were... I hadn't, I didn't even realize those memories are still there and now they're vivid. And, and so yeah. something was old, was, was blocking them or whatever. I don't know, but uh, it, it was not just the emotions that came back, but it was specific memories that, that actually helped mm -hmm. to those emotions. But it was, it was really an amazing thing. Up to that point, from the time you were 11 until the time you had uh, this bat given to you, how would you describe your emotional journey? Well, in my mind, I was fine. You know, in my, my wife will tell you that, that I, I didn't laugh much. I didn't cry at all. I, I just felt like, okay, so that's part of my personality. I, I do remember specifically at one point we were watching a movie with a couple of friends and it was a funny part of a movie and everyone was howling, laughing. And in my mind, I thought I was laughing too, but I was just sitting there with a smirk, you know, laughing on the inside. Look at me, he said, why don't, why aren't you laughing? And I said, I think, oh, they said, don't you think it's funny? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm laughing right along with you, aren't I? So I didn't express much emotion at all. I, I never realized that it was particularly 
different, but over time I began to, to, to realize it. And still to this day, I'm probably less emotional than others, but I'm a lot different than I was back then. You have another story that really helps you in your spiritual journey, especially as it pertains to the Romans 8.28 question of God working all things together for good. You, you never knew what those all things working together for good look like, and you question whether or not that passage is really true for you until something happened with your daughter. You want to describe that? Yeah, well, over, over the years, she's heard my testimony, and, and a big part of my testimony was when I was approximately 23, 24 years old, and I was teaching high school at the time, and I was teaching history, and I was preparing for a class and at this point, I was still wrestling with God on all of this stuff. And I was preparing a timeline that, that spanned hundreds of years. And the point I was wanting to get across to, to my students was this thing that happened in this particular year had a big effect on this thing that happened hundreds of years later. And it was that at that moment when I felt like God was trying to tell me, that's my perspective. And by the way, I never promised to tell you why I took your brother. It was at that, that time, that moment when I was preparing for that class that I said, I prayed, prayed to God. I said, yeah, you're right. You never promised to tell me why you took my brother and I'm going to trust you anyway. So it was really at that point, I felt like I finally got over the God having my conditional Christianity. I felt like I was a conditional Christian in the sense of God, I'm going to trust you as long as you fulfill your part of the bargain. I gave up my part of the bargain at that point and said, God, I trust you anyway. I'm going to trust you regardless. And so when my kids were growing up, they've heard this testimony from time to time. And we went through a, a period of time when my daughter was somewhere between 17, 18, 19, where she went through a, she and I went through a very difficult time. Our relationship got very, very strained as I'm sure a lot of fathers of, of teenage daughters can, can relate to, but it got really, really bad. It was a very hard time in our lives when my daughter was really struggling with us. So she went off to college and things weren't going well. And ultimately things thawed. And when the relationship thawed, as we started to begin to see her at college again, we got to know her good friend. Her, she had a good friend named Sammy, who they ultimately became roommates. So we got to know Sammy. Sammy was a you know, always had a ready smile. She loved us. We developed a great relationship with her. And to this day, we have a great relationship with Sammy. But Molly was not particularly communicative during this time. So all we knew was that Molly was, didn't want anything to do with us. And over time, she got more and more, that, that relationship began to thaw. And so eventually, she graduated from college and, and things got much, much better. But I never heard the backstory. So fast forward to when she's uh, out of college uh, and we decided to take a, a family vacation now that we had just paid our last tuition bill to, uh, for, for my younger son. And we thought we'd use all that extra money and, and uh, have a really nice vacation. So we went down to Punta Cana in the uh, in Dominican Republic. The very first day we were there, my daughter Molly and I got in a um, swimming pool. We were just kind of standing there, just talking to each other. It was, great. It was one of those great moments, you know, every dad of a, a adult children wants to have one-on-one -on -one time with their kids. And we were just talking about a lot of different things. <sighs> and uh, then she started telling me the rest of the story. And, as, you know, when she was in college and she told, she told me that her friend, Sammy, when she met Sammy and she had just come to college, Sammy had been like three or four years out of 
her losing her brother. Her older brother died in a motorcycle accident. Sammy was not a Christian. And in the deepest, darkest moments of my relationship with Molly, Molly couldn't stand me at that point in time. But for whatever reason, you know, when Sammy told that story, Molly told her my story. So my testimony, and I would say miraculously, led Sammy to Christ. Sammy started going to university and learning learning about the Christian walk, and Sammy ended up being a great influence on Molly and drawing her back, you know, drawing her into a stronger faith. And and that's that's really when the thaw started happening. And um, so Molly's telling me this story, and, and immediately my reaction to Molly was, Molly, that's fantastic that my story had had played a role in, in leading Sammy to Christ. And in words that I could only believe were prompted by the Holy Spirit, Molly just looked at me and said, Dad, you don't get it. She said, Sammy's a Christian because Ricky died. And then as if I wasn't getting it enough, she said it again. So it, it was at that moment that I kind of realized that, you know, many years ago, I prayed, you know, I don't, I don't need to know why you took Ricky. I trust you anyway. And I felt like God was giving me a, a, a small glimpse of how he works. You know, this girl who was born, you know, 20 years after Ricky died is a believer now having a lot to do with the fact that Ricky died uh, 20 years before her and, and the testimony that grew out of that, that's how she came to faith. And it just really, really hit me uh, as she told me that story and I lost it again. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that along your journey, you have had these divine interventions, the baseball bat, something as, as silly as a baseball bat was used by God to, break open some of that frozen emotional state in which you found yourself since you lost Ricky. And then your daughter's testimony of Sammy and how God used Ricky's death for that purpose. Here you are. How old are you now, Doug? Just turned 60. Just turned 60. Mm -hmm. So here we are and and these divine interventions, I like to call them scorch marks. These uh, divine scorch marks are being used even today, even today, as 50 years later, you are still able to see the work of God through Ricky's death, touching people, touching you, breaking those emotional barriers down. And so as we close here today, I, I really want you to speak to the parents who have lost a child concerning their, their surviving children, their young children. What counsel would you give them? In other words, I'm thinking about your own family and the dynamic of your own family. They, they're already wounded. They're trying to drag each other off the battlefield. And yet they have these other children that are also either uncertain, fearful, maybe angry, maybe going into isolation. How do they minister to those children? Because I want to tell you the hardest part for me as a dad when we lost Mark was how do I minister to my children who are in so much pain right now? Watching their pain was even worse than absorbing my own pain. Just knowing that there was very little I could do or say that's going to take that pain away. But I I do think it's important for us to note that many of these children never, ever grieve properly. 
Uh, they grow up different people than God intended them to be. So what could adults do? What, what should adults say to a young child who has had this kind of intervention, this, this horrible enemy called death, walk through the doors, the front doors of their home and disturb everything that they considered to be safe? What advice do you have for the, for the adults who are listening to this right now? Well, I don't pretend to, to understand a lot of this, the psychology or any of that, but when you were asking me some of these questions, one of the things that occurred to me was that when I look back, I remember negatively a lot of the things people said and I remember positively a lot of the things people did. One of the things that I've taken away from this whole experience over the years is that whenever there's a funeral of somebody, I really try to go and I really try not to say anything. I try to just be there. That, that's one thing. I think children, I needed people to know that they cared and, and show that they cared. And parents, I think, have, are in a difficult spot because they're grieving so much. And their kids, I knew how much my parents were grieving. I saw how much they were struggling. I wasn't going to go to them for help. How dare I? <laughs> what they were going through was horrific, and I couldn't ask them for help. I couldn't talk to them about it. They would start them crying again. I didn't want them to do that. Um, and so I, I do think it's beholden on, on somebody else other than the parents to come to these kids and try to figure out a way to get these kids to talk about it. I, I didn't talk about it with anybody. I mean, there's a lot of stuff swirling around in my head, but I don't ever remember opening up with anybody. And whenever anyone tried to bring up the subject, I moved right on. I didn't want to talk about it. Uh, I think college was the first time I broached it at all with anybody, but even that was very limited. But uh, certainly as a child, had someone walked me through and effectively gotten me to talk about it, I think that probably would have helped, but that never happened. What type of person would, as you look back now in retrospect, and we, we of course, have that 2020 hindsight, right. what kind of adult person, can you think of one individual that you would have loved to have heard from? Somebody that would have taken you aside and allowed you to, to, to vent. I would say even my pastor, my pastor never, he told me things. He never asked me. And I really looked up to my pastor and almost too much. I mean, I thought he was, I remember thinking as a kid, he never sins. I mean, I, 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 I had him on such a pedestal. He never maybe felt it was awkward or whatever. He was good at some things, but this kind of stuff maybe wasn't. But had he asked me, I would have. I would have felt like at that point, because of how I felt about him, I would have no choice. If he said, Doug, how are you doing? I would have felt like I had to answer him. And so maybe that would have helped. Even that Sunday school teacher I was talking to you about, she did a lot of great teaching. She never had one-on-one time with me. It was always in a group setting. Uh, I don't ever remember, frankly, anyone in a one-on-one setting asking me how I was doing. You know, And so I think just someone that I would have trusted, and there were plenty of adults back then that I trusted. Had they taken me aside, taken me for a walk or whatever, and tried to draw it out, I think they, I think they could have succeeded. And, and if you had that person, if, if there was such an individual, what would you have wanted them to say to you uh, as they take you for that walk or take you to a movie or whatever? Would you wanted them to have, would you want them to have talked to you about Ricky? Would you want them to bring up Ricky, talk about Ricky? <sighs> I think just in, in general, talking about talking to me about the fact that God doesn't promise us 
that some there will be a you know a, a point in time where it will all become crystal clear. God d- never promised us that, um, and so that's a hard thing to tell an eleven-year-old or fifteen-year-old or whatever. But I needed to hear that. I only discovered it on my own when I was you know preparing for a, a world history class that I was teaching. No one told me that, and then the next great. The next closest thing I got to someone actually saying that was when I met you and heard your, heard about your ministry and about what happened with your son. But it's very rare that someone will come right out and tell a grieving person, you know, kind of the truth is, is that this is a hard thing that happened and it's really hard to explain. And I'm sorry you're going through it and not try to explain it. Because uh, I felt like everyone is struggling to try to make sense of it for me. And no one did. No one could. That confused me. We know that uh, Job's comforters get a bad rap. They started out on the right track by sitting there with Job in the midst of all of his pain, but they never opened their mouths mm-hmm. until days later. And when when those days later came, they began to tell Job why this happened mm-hmm. and what sin there was in his life. And his friends, who were his comforters at one point, Somewhat became his enemies because they said the wrong things. I'm thinking, Doug, of two people right now, one of which is in heaven. If I look back on my journey of grief, these are probably the two people that spoke most to my heart in my own grief journey. And maybe there's a similarity between them and what adults should do when it comes to children who have lost a loved one. But the first one is, is Emil. Uh, Emil is with the Lord now. He died very suddenly as a terrific in shape man who just had a heart attack and he died. But Emil came to my house one day, right in the throes of our grief. And he sat down beside me and he said, I want to know how you're doing. How are you really doing? And I said, Emil, I am so angry with God right now. I am so angry that he did this. He could have stopped this. I said, I'm so angry. I want to hit something. I said, I've sat here in front of this TV and I've thought about putting my fist through the wall, putting my fist through the, I want to, I want to hit somebody. I want to hurt somebody. And at that point, he grabbed me by the shoulders and he had tears in his eyes. And he looked, he looked me, I mean, we were nose to nose. He said, hit me, hit me. And he meant it. And he meant it. Uh, We laughed until the day he died that I never took him up on that because I think I, I probably would have hurt him very badly. But he was dead serious. He was actually begging me to hit him, to take my anger out on him. And that's precisely what Christ did. He he took my sin on himself. He bore the brunt of all the punishment that I rightfully deserved. The second person is a younger man. He's still with us. A man, I just, I love Bob. I love him dearly. But he came to our house in the days after Mark died because there were hundreds of people coming through our home. And Bob sat in the corner, across from me, in the corner, never said a word. And he did that for days. He would come, he would spend the whole day there. And he would just sit in the corner and watch us. And so finally, one day, I worked up the courage to say, Bob, why are you here? And he said, I just want to be with you. He said, I I don't have any other reason except I want to be with you, because I know you're in terrible pain. And he said, and I know when God, when some when one of his children is in terrible pain, God is close. And he said, so I wanted to be where God was. 
And I will never forget that. He never became a Job's comforter. He just sat there and watched and grieved with us. Those are the two individuals I remember the most. And I'm, I'm just thinking now, I, I wish as we look back on your life, that you had somebody like Emil or somebody like Bob who were willing to take an 11-year-old boy by the hand and not give him plasticized Christian, those cliches that we Christians like to use. But we're just sitting down and say, how can I help you? What can I do to help you? To talk to you about Ricky, your favorite subject. To talk about memories and to help you bust out of the emotional bondage that all of this pain around you caused. So I'm so appreciative of you being so vulnerable and sharing what you're sharing with us about, even as an adult, even today at 60 years of age. You're still in the grief journey because it'll never go away. It'll always be there. But And, and God does not owe us an explanation. I like to use the illustration. And I, I do this a lot with people because uh, it affected me so much. I read uh, Edith Schaefer, who is Francis Schaefer's wife. Mm. They're both with the Lord now. Uh, she wrote a book years ago, many years ago, probably in the 70s, called Affliction. And in that book, she paints this picture of all the questions that we have where we question God's love for us, the question of God's sovereignty and his grace, where people doubt that. The Romans 8, 28 doubters uh, Mm -hmm. that God is going to work something for the good to those who love him, all things, even the evil things. And she said, one day when we stand before God, he's going to show us a tapestry that he has been building for our entire lives. While we're here on earth, we only see the underside of that tapestry. All we see is a bunch of different colored strings, tangled strings that are hanging down that make no sense at all. But when he takes us to the other side and we're able to look down on the top side of the tapestry, we'll see a beautiful picture that God has been painting. I I take that to bed with me every night because of Marking Ministries. People have told us, you know, look look what God is accomplishing through Marking Ministries. So there's, there's that purpose in your son's death. And I, and I agree that there's a purpose in that, but I'd rather have my son back. Right. You know, right. I, I'd rather have him back. God didn't need me or Marking Ministries to reach the lost. He did that. He accomplished that. And so I, I want to encourage parents who are watching this to hear Doug's heart, uh, to hear his story, that there are children. There are children who are, who are struggling in silence, who, who need that adult without the cliches, without all of the so-called answers, uh, but those who just need to become the Bobs in their life, who who will just sit in the corner and weep with them and mourn with them and minister to them and show them the love that Christ has shown us. Doug, any final words you'd like to share? I I appreciate uh, the opportunity to to discuss this, and, and I would agree with you on just being with people, I mean, there have been many occasions where God has allowed me to to uh, to, to play a role in people uh, getting over grief, but almost never with my words. You know, I'll say, you know, there's one particular time right after my father passed away, and that was you know one time where where I allowed myself to cry. And a week later, good friends of ours had their son pass away from a, a horrible accident, and so I. And I didn't know them really well. I told my wife, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. It's too, too soon. And she talked me into going. And because it was so soon after my father's passing, I lost it at that funeral. And 
these two parents who just lost a child were so appreciative of my grief at their son that we became really close. And I was, I've been able to, to be close with them and, and uh, ever since then. And, and not because of a word I said, because I, they perceived that I was feeling their, their son, you know, grieving for their son. And, and in a way I was, but it was, it was just magnified. So I think for a lot of people, children, I think in particular, who, who have a hard time expressing these things, it takes time because you can't get the words out and, and get the cliches out or whatever. You just have to be with them, figure out a way for them to palpably know that you love them and that you care about them and that you're, you don't have all the answers. And sometimes it's just helpful to sit down with someone and say, this is horrible with you. Um, if someone sat down with me, you know, when Ricky died and said, this is horrible. Instead, they tried to, to gloss it over. That would have been helpful. And, and so I, I think we, we too often get in our own way because we try to come up with the right words to say. And the motivation should just be, be there for people and, and let the Holy Spirit help you figure out what to do and say, mostly to do. There is a scripture that tells us that God gives us a special kind of comfort that only, that only he can give. He says, the purpose of me giving you that comfort is that you receive that comfort but then you turn around and use the same comfort with which I comforted you to comfort someone else. And so that at least is one purpose in our sorrows, and that is to minister to those from first-hand experience. You have credibility with those who have lost a loved one. Right. You have credibility with those who have lost a brother. You have credibility with those who are young kids uh, who have experienced great tragedy because you have gone through it. So I appreciate so much your being willing to comfort those with the same comfort with which you were comforted. We say to God be the glory. Thank you, Doug, for sharing your grief journey in such a transparent way. I'm Dr. Chuck Betters, and you have been listening to a conversation with Doug McRae. Now on our website, markinc.org, on this program's page, you will find some suggested resources that can help you navigate this minefield of grief. Thank you for listening. May God richly bless you.